This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by J&B Scotch. J&B and you. Better together. Oh, and it makes a good Molotov cocktail, too. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, a double feature. The late night double feature. It's the thing, motherfuckers. It's not really a double feature. It's kind of a double feature. Kind of. It's kind of a double feature. It's a pre-makewal. <laughs> yes. It's a pre-makewal, which is a modification. Of <laughs> just a modification of what we went through with describing what Evil Dead 2 was. Mm-hmm. Which is a remake wool. Mm-hmm. It's a sequel slash remake. This is a prequel slash remake. Mm-hmm. A pre-make wool. <laughs> Very good, Barry. Thanks. Very good. Of the thing, 1982's original version and the 2011 pre-make wool. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to the movies, slash cards. Name five horror movies that take place on holidays. Ugh. Didn't I name five that were just on Christmas? That's why I'm going to say you can only do one on Christmas. Okay. If I can only do one on Christmas, it's going to be Black Christmas. As it should be. Halloween. April Fool's Day. Now my mind is a blank and I have to search through all the holidays. Uh, New Year's Evil. Uh, what's another one? Because I'm I'm not counting seasonal movies. I'm counting specifically holiday movies. That's, that means it doesn't count Friday the 13th because that's not a holiday. Uh, Thanks Killing. No, my bloody Valentine. You're right. <laughs> You did a New Year's movie we didn't even do this year. You could have done Terror Train. Oh, Terror Train is the one I was thinking of, but I said New Year's Evil. (laughs) You could have done Lifeblood. Ew. Ew. The Phantom Carriage. Yeah. Valentine. Oh, Jesus. I also could have done April Fool's, and I didn't. (laughs) I did April Fool's Day. All right, Kelsey. Yeah. Hocus Pocus. I love Hocus Pocus. 1993. Takes place in what historic U.S. town? Salem. Salem. What? I would assume it's Massachusetts. Yes. (laughs) And not the Salem in Oregon. Oregon, yeah. (laughs) Salem, Massachusetts is correct. All right. That means it's time for our first movie, 1982's John Carpenter classic, The Thing. As I said, directed by John Carpenter. 
based on an original short story by John W. Campbell Jr. called Who Goes There? Screenplay written by Bill Lancaster and starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, and Keith David. Kelsey. And, and people could argue this is a remake as well. Yes. Yes. Although I have not seen the original from what I know about it. The thing from another world? It is very different from, from planet, both the story and the, and the movie that we Yeah, this love. movie is much more faithful to the original short story. Kelsey, what is the thing about? What's the premise? A group of scientists are in the Antarctic. Yes. Or in Antarctica. It's a very hard word to say. Antarctica? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Because normally we say Antarctica. Yeah. Which means we lose the ant and the arc and the tick. Antarctica. Antarctica. Anyway, um, a group of scientists in Antarctica come across an alien species that is no E.T., Okay, well, technically it is an E.T. because E.T. stands for extraterrestrial, and they are extraterrestrial. Everyone knew what I meant. This is no nice E.T. phone home alien. It's funny, too, because I was going to recommend that you say ALF, but ALF also stands for alien life form, so that doesn't ah! count either. Ah! <laughs> Besides which, nobody knows ALF anymore. <laughs> At least people still know who E.T. is. Although I think I had a... At one point, I think I had a stuffed ALF. Yeah. Some people were afraid of ALF. He's a little weird. He's got that weird nose. He eats cats. He looks like Gonzo to me, just brown. Yeah. So I think it's also worth mentioning that it causes the men at this outpost to be suspicious of each other. Yes, this is a story about paranoia as well. Yes. It's also incredibly famous for its special effects, its practical special effect work. Very, very famous for some cool uh, body horror. Which is why when they were going to remake it with CG, we all knew how terrible that was going to be. We'll get to that one. <laughs> All right, so, Kelsey. Yeah? Would you recommend people watch this movie before listening to the rest of this episode? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. You should see it. It's it's part of the Pod Cemetery official 1001 movies to see before you die. It's one of the few body horrors we're going to watch. Yeah. We don't watch a lot of body horror, but sometimes it's okay. I, I, think, I think body horror... What was the name of the one that we watched? Society? Yeah. And then there was also the one where she gives birth outside her body. Oh, The Brood. The Brood, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we'll do body horror occasionally. Like, I'm not opposed to eventually doing The Fly. But we're probably not going to do, like, Videodrome or especially because get your your emails ready. Kelsey really doesn't like Eraserhead. I hate um. <laughs> Eraserhead. It's so we're, stupid. We're not going to do any of those kind of... Yeah, it's just sometimes they pop up. I mean, a lot of them are classic, and I tend to not focus on the body horror when I watch these movies. I focus more on the story itself. Well, like The Fly, this also isn't really metaphorical. Like, you can read metaphor into it, but the body horror in, like, a Cronenberg movie, for a lot of them... I mean, obviously there's the fly, but like for, say, Videodrome, it's primarily metaphorical. 
is yes. what the body horror is used for. It's to it's to teach a lesson. It's to preach something. In this, it's literally an alien, and this is literally happening. And it's you know, so it's it's a little bit more uh, grounded than you might think of a of a normal like Cronenberg film. I suppose, but would you make that same argument for society? Yeah, I know. I think it's very metaphorical. But it's literally happening at the same time. Right, but the point is... <laughs> it's about how the rich eat the poor and all that. Suck um, off the poor, thank you very yes, much. Yes, yeah, that's true. And you could make an argument that since this came out in 1982, it's about kind of the end of the Cold War and paranoia on a national scale and that sort of thing. You could definitely make that argument. Absolutely. I wrote an essay in college yeah. about the short story for a science fiction class that I took, which is the coolest thing. Being an English major is super cool because you get classes like that where you just read science fiction. Uh-huh. Anyway, I wrote an essay about how it's actually – and I didn't come up with this idea. It was obviously set in class, but I just wrote an entire essay about it, how – it's actually about the fear of women being introduced into the workforce. I remember you telling me about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Again, I did not come up with that on my own, but I came up with all of my own connections and all my quotes and everything. Looking back at it now, I think I might have been reaching a little bit. Well, that's part of the fun of that kind of analysis. I think the problem is, is that film is art and art is metaphor and you're going to get it no matter what. Yes, but I mean... It was on the short story, but I think this movie actually does a very good um, interpretation of the story. Yeah. I just reread it because of this episode, and I was like, oh, did a much better job than I remembered it doing when I read it in college. But um, I think it's still there. I think if you look at the time when he wrote it in in the late 30s, I think you can still make that argument, but I think more... Yeah, when you look at it in terms of the 80s, absolutely, this was about the end of the Cold War and stuff like that. Alrighty then, so go ahead and watch this movie. That's our recommendation. Even if you've seen it before, watch it again. Everyone loves The Thing. And when we get back, we'll talk about 1982's The Thing. Its origin, alien. Location, Antarctica. Age, unknown. Intent survival. Destination man. John Carpenter's The Thing, the ultimate in alien terror. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for local listings. So The Thing has a really, really complicated plot, mainly because this alien takes over, well, sorry, doesn't take over people's body. It's not like a pod people kind of thing or invasion of the body snatchers. It's that it destroys and duplicates humans or other biological beings. So it makes the plot really complicated. And since it's built mainly on paranoia, all the details really, really matter. So it's not our job, as far as I'm concerned, to basically tell you the every beat of the movie so you don't have to watch it. We assume you have watched it. So instead, you'll catch me skipping over tons and tons of things. I'm just going to run through the major moments of the film and not everything that happens in them. So. 
Here we go. It does take place in present day, which as we know is 1982. It's in Antarctica. We start the movie with a Norwegian helicopter chasing after a dog, a sled dog. And it's weird. We don't know what's going on. This dog is running for its life. And there's somebody hanging out the side of the helicopter, shooting at the dog and throwing dynamite at it. It looks like a husky and huskies are my favorite dog. Yes. It's very sad. So (laughs) (laughs) because of all the explosives, the helicopter itself ends up blowing up and killing that passenger. The pilot is shooting his gun and shouting at the Americans. They don't know what's going on because obviously they don't speak Norwegian. And because he's brandishing a gun on them and he has been firing and there's an explosion, nobody knows what's going on. Gary shoots him. Which one's Gary? Gary is the station commander. He's the only one with a gun. He's the old guy. Yes. Who plays like a Irish cop in some movie, doesn't he? Yes. Gary is played by Donald Moffat, who you may know from Clear and Present Danger. He plays the president. He plays LBJ in The Right Stuff. He's been in a bunch of things. We meet a helicopter pilot by the name of McCready. He's going to be our main character. That's Kurt Russell. Yeah. Hot 80s Kurt Russell. (laughs) And one of the doctors, in this case a medical doctor... Dr. Cooper and McCready. Diabetes. No, not that doctor. <laughs> they're like almost all doctors here. Yeah. Because it is not- a science research station. We don't know what it, they're doing yeah, there. Yeah, it's not clear. In the story, they're there looking at magnetic. Yes, magnetic fields and sub-zero temperatures. That's what they're studying. Yeah. So McCready and Dr. Cooper, they go fly their helicopter back to where they think these Norwegians came from. Can we just stop for a moment and talk about the fact that McCready in this version... Is badass? ...is a helicopter pilot? Why on earth is he put in charge? He's not. He takes charge, and that's the point. Why on earth would they let him? It makes no sense. These are a bunch of scientists. Well, for half the movie, he's carrying around dynamite. In the short story, (laughs) he's a scientist. That's fine. No, I'm okay with this because he's the rough and tumble, knows how to survive kind of guy, and that's the situation they're in. Would you like to know how he is described to look in the short story? Is he a nerd? No. Okay. He is a man made of bronze. <laughs> he's like he's six a bronze five, god. <laughs> and that's this is what I'm talking about when I bring up my essay about it being about men against women. Yeah. Uh-huh. Most of the men in the short story are, most of them, not all of them, most of them are described, like I said, made of pure bronze, where he goes, everyone follows, like, kind of thing. Like, he is the quintessential masculine man. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Which I feel like they did in this movie. They just fucking made him a fucking helicopter Pilot. pilot for some reason. Why can't he be smart? Well, first of all, they need him to be able to fly a helicopter and they need him to be the rugged one. There's two rugged people. No, I think you can argue three, four rugged people in this movie. So smart people can't be rugged. (laughs) Not especially. There's four rugged people. There's McCready. Yep. There's uh, Childs. Keith David. No, I know. I'm trying to remember (laughs) what I know him from. Where you know Keith David from? Um, 
he's the other character and they live along with Rowdy Roddy Piper? I've never seen it because someone will never watch it with me. You say that, but you never want to actually see it. He's a military general in Armageddon. He's Dr. Facilier in Princess and the Frog. See, then I get this image of a guy with a with a gap tooth. Yeah. Does he have a gap tooth? Uh, Isn't no, he a slimy character? Isn't he like a bad guy in another movie? Well, he's a bad guy in The Princess and the Frog. <gasps> Requiem for a Dream. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, so we have McCready. We have Childs. We have Clark. He's a simple man, but he's rugged. Oh, is that Stan? That's Stanley. That's <laughs> Stan. Stan Uris, the older Stan Uris. I feel so from bad for Stan. It from 1990. He's such a sweet guy. Will you say it? A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Yay! <laughs> oh, Stan. And finally, Blair. He's a rugged motherfucker if there ever was one, but he plays more of a scientist in this than anything. Who's Blair? Uh, Diabetes, <laughs> Wilford Brimley. <laughs> uh, We're never going to get through this fucking movie. Okay, continue. Okay, so they go there. They find two things. They find a block of ice that had been torn out of the ground and looks like something's in it. They also find a giant hole with what appears to be a spaceship. What? And fucking everyone's dead there. Charred remains of things. Just everything's just destroyed. So they bring all that back to the American base. And Blair does an autopsy on the burned remains, which look kind of human, but not really human. They don't really give you a good look at what it looks like. Uh, He does find human organs in it, though. So they're like, what the heck was this? Well, what we got here is what appears to be, anyway, a normal set of internal organs. Heart. Lungs. Kidneys. Liver. Intestines. Seem to be normal. Clark puts the dog in the dog kennel with the rest of the other sled dogs that the Americans had. And the first big thing happens. That thing transforms and tries to assimilate the rest of the dogs. And this is where everything goes crazy and Childs takes a flamethrower to it. Blair autopsies this thing and finds that what it's doing is perfectly mimicking living organisms. You see, what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms and it imitates them perfectly. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to digest them, absorb them, and in the process, shape its own cells to imitate them. So they look at some data they got from the Norwegian site. This is where they actually find the flying saucer at this point. And it looks like based on on how deep it is, it's been down there for like 100,000 years based on the layers of ice. So it's been there for a very, very long time. Uh, Blair, based on the data that the Norwegians had... Uh, determines that it would be a matter of years before it would assimilate all of life on Earth. 
Specifically, it would take over the world in 27,000 hours. How many days do you think that is? Uh, I know how many days that is. That's 1,125 days, which is almost exactly three years. Three years! We got Mm -hmm. three years. (laughs) In that shitty fucking simulation, which even John Carpenter is like, yeah, that's totally not how it actually works. It's a bad representation of it. It doesn't do a very good job of explaining to the audience what's happening, and that's the only purpose of that scene. And he learns in that scene that there's a 75% chance that someone has already been taken over. Yes. There's even a scene where we see the dog walk into somebody's room. This is before it was put in the kennel. And we don't know who it is. It's just a silhouette. It sees the dog comes in and motions it in. And specifically, that shadow is no one. It's no one actually in the cast, specifically because Carpenter didn't want to give away any clues or anything like that. So Bennings gets taken over by this weird creature uh, and Windows. Yes, there are characters named Mac and Windows. But again, this is 1982, so that wasn't a thing. Uh, Windows walks in and McCready ends up burning it uh, when ben- Bennings, the they call them uh, Bennings and Bennings thing. Basically, every resource has a has a name hyphen thing for when it's been assimilated to make it easy to keep track of what's going on. So Bennings gets taken over and becomes Bennings thing. Windows sees this happen and McCready burns Bennings thing. But while all this is going on. Blair kills all the dogs that were still alive. He somehow sabotages all the vehicles. He destroys the radio so they can't communicate and they can't get out. This is him uh, implementing these measures that he's like, fuck it, we're going to die. and But we have to protect the rest of the earth. Now, what's weird about that, eventually he gets taken. The question is when... And I've actually read online that, according to the timeline, it makes more sense that he would have been taken over before he got isolated. And therefore, as the alien, he was destroying all this stuff? But then you think about what happens in the end and what he tries to do. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it would have to be that he does this to make it seem like he's human, Mm -hmm. but then they isolate him, Mm -hmm. which is contrary to his goal of seeming like he's a human. Mm -hmm. And then he gets isolated, and while he's isolated, he has the time to work on building a new spaceship. Mm -hmm. I don't like that explanation. Okay. I like the explanation that he was taken over after he got isolated. But who did? Who got to him? It could be anything. That's the problem. (laughs) There are plenty of opportunities. Uh, But like I said, we're not going to break down every single moment and what's happening at every single scene every single time. It it is difficult, though. It does make it difficult to really digest the story. Yes. Because it's like... Well, the first time around, you just have to go for the ride. Right. Not try to figure that shit out. But I've seen this before. Yeah. And even now, like, I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know what the time There are is. guides that you could that you could watch the movie with to keep track of that kind of stuff. Okay. Because uh, this is one of them. So they, they lock him up in a tool shed outside of the main facility. And 
the doctor says, okay, we can test everyone's blood. That's what we'll do. And so they go and they look at the uncontaminated blood that they already have on hand in case of emergencies, in case somebody needs blood. Everyone's blood is kept in cold storage. They open up the locker, the refrigerator, and it's all fucking destroyed. Now, we never get a clear answer about who destroyed it. That's the problem. The story is, if I remember correctly, Windows had the keys at one point. He borrowed the keys. Windows hasn't been taken yet. No, you're right. There is an audio cue at one at one point where they're all running out of the facility where you hear keys fall. And that's Windows losing the keys. Hmm. And somebody picks them up and destroys the blood. Interesting. Yeah. John Carpenter, you are a smart man. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. So we're not going to hit all those moments, like I said. It's at this point that people are all like, we can't trust Gary now. Because Gary's the one in charge of the keys. And Cooper is the one, only one that would normally get access to this. So we kind of can't trust him either. This is when McCready, like, takes it upon himself to be, like, the steady man. The other person that they would probably want to lead them is Childs. But McCready makes the argument, basically, that you're way too hot-headed. We need somebody more even-tempered, is yes. what he says. <laughs> and he just basically takes the gun. I'll take it. Hell, you will. There should be somebody a little more even-tempered, child. And I don't believe that they would let him do that. Especially since, at this point, don't they think he's been taken? No. Or that's later. That's later, yeah. Mm -hmm. Fuchs, his body is found burned. They think he committed suicide. They think somebody might be in McCready's shack. He has a tower. And they think somebody might have gone to there. So McCready and Nalls, who's the cook, go out there. Nalls comes back alone. And he tells this story, I cut him off. I cut the rope. And he shows that he has clothes torn to shreds that has McCready's name on it. Where's McCready? I cut him loose on the ladder by the shack. Cut him loose. Yeah, we're up checking around this place. I found this. Look, it was stashed in his own oil furnace. Wind must have dislodged it, but I don't think he saw me find it. I made sure I got ahead of him on the tow line on the way back. I cut him loose. McCready? He's one of them. This is important, as McCready points out in a recording earlier on, that it destroys the clothes. One other thing, I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Windows found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. They could be anybody's. Nobody... Nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. It takes over the body. Inorganic material, yes, as which, this new which, one would make. Which is know. important in the remake or the pre-makeable. <laughs> and so, but they like they found pajamas or whatever, and but they, they didn't have the name patch on them. So they don't know whose they were. It could be anybody's. But somebody had been taken over. They knew that at that point. This time, they find McCready's clothes, all torn up with his name on it. And Nulls cut them off, which means, so they're on a lead. And he was the one behind. He cut the rope that McCready had and ran back. So now McCready is going to have a hard time getting back to the camp, to the outpost, because they're in the middle of a snowstorm. And as the short story points out, it's literally Im impossible for him to get back in this weather. 
Yes. Um, and that is why when he does, everyone is just like... He's inhuman. Yeah, he he's obviously an, an alien. So there's a there's kind of a tenuous structure that's set up at this point because he breaks back in and is like, guys, I the the rope broke, and Nal's like, there's no way he doesn't know that I cut him loose. He's lying. And when they when they break into the room that he's at, he's holding dynamite and he has a flamethrower. But before that, uh-huh. Childs is making the argument we have to lock him out. Yeah. And everybody is, you know, quarreling about whether or not that's a good idea. Yeah. And I think it's Windows that says, what if he's a human? And Childs is like, that's, that's, then that's what happens. Childs' response is, well, then we're wrong. Childs, what if we're wrong about him? Why then we're wrong? Fuck it. Yeah. Who cares? At this point, it's more important that we, that we, we are better safe than sorry. Childs is in his own way like a really effective leader, very militaristic and at all costs kind of guy. Meanwhile, McCready is trying to keep people calm and trying to find a solution. But this might be so dire that there is no solution. And maybe Childs' way of leading is the most effective way. That's kind of one of the questions that the movie asks. But I don't think that McCready is against... What Childs ends up No, McCready like likes Childs. It's just that he, he just, he's hoping, he's hopeful yeah. for a solution, but he's not going to fuck around. Yeah. If he doesn't think there's a solution, then fuck it, we're all going to die. Yeah. He is of the same mind as Childs and, of the, and more of the same mind of diabetes. Blair. Because <laughs> he totally agrees, we can't leave. Yeah. Uh-huh. We cannot leave until we know who's So who. they're kind of on a spectrum with Blair at one far end and maybe, I don't know, Nall's windows, I guess, at the other end of what to do. And Childs is a little bit closer to Blair. McCready's probably somewhere in the middle. Who do you think you would side with? Probably McCready, and it's for this reason. They set up this really, really tenuous structure of leadership at this point because he has dynamite. And he's showing that he's not afraid to light this dynamite. He's like, listen, if you guys come anywhere near me, I will blow this whole station up. We will all die. And I'm okay with that. I don't want that to happen, though. And that's why it sets up this really tenuous relationship, because it almost... It doesn't prove, but it supports the idea that he's not the alien because he's willing to kill himself, which the alien would not be. But it could all just be an act. So it's like this this paranoia comes up again and the whole relationship between everyone and who's following whom is all surrounded by this aura of paranoia. And that's the whole movie is like that. So it's at this point that Norris dies because during the fight and the struggle he has a heart attack and cooper gets the defibrillator you know the clear thing and this is probably the most famous scene in the thing just in isolation it's the one you've seen the most is the second or third time he goes to drop the defibrillator on the chest of Norris and Norris's body opens up in a giant mouth and he plunges his hands into his body and then the mouth closes and rips his arms off. And this is when the Norris thing just 
it's one of the most impressive transformations in the movie. Yeah, we've we've gl- skipped over pretty much all of them at this point that we've seen so far. And I got to say these special effects are outstanding. Yeah. They're still creepy. They're still scary. They're still grotesque. Right, and it moves like a puppet. But right, that, you can tell. It's no, no, a no, 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 no. Uh, but uh, my point is, is that like puts it on the wrong side of the uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. But that's a good thing for the purposes of this. They're not trying to imitate real life. They're trying to imitate something that is grotesque. Mm-hmm. That is uncanny. So it doesn't cross the uncanny valley. It's right in the center of it, and it looks unreal and our minds reject it as being gross. And that's the point. That's what they're going for. So I think they utilize the concept of the uncanny Valley really, really well, which if you don't know, the uncanny Valley is when thing is imit- when something is imitating real life, it gets closer and closer to impressing us until at a certain point it gets so close, but it's just not right. I wrote an essay about the uncanny. Yeah. <laughs> it was my thesis, one of my thesis works in college. Uh, what was it in regards to? It was in regards to a little book called A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, right. Yes. Uh-huh. But in this case, with the uncanny valley, <laughs> uh, it gets so close, but it, that, that our minds go, nope, we're not okay with this. Because it's still not perfect. If something could be perfect, we would accept it. Like the thing is when it's walking around in these people's bodies. It's they. That's why they're just performed as people and not puppets. Because it's supposed to convince us. It's crossed the valley. But then once it starts to transform, it's right dead center in, that, in the middle of that valley. And, and our minds just go, gross! It's not moving quite like a real thing would move. And that's really creepy. So anyway, McCready incinerates the thing, but it takes him a while. This is when they're having problems with the flamethrower. It happens in both movies. And the head ends up getting away from the body. And as they're dealing with the body, which is still like is this freaking when he out. Says, Are you fucking kidding me? This is when he says, because as the body's about to leave, it goes through the doorway and windows turns and says, are you fucking kidding me? you got to be fucking kidding. It's the head with spider legs. Yes, there is a lot of spider-like detail. Uh-huh. It really creeps me out. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Clark ends up charging at McCready at one point, and so McCready shoots him, or kills him, or incinerates him. I can't remember. What happens? Does he incinerate him? I think so. They do end up killing, like, two innocent people. Yes. In this struggle. Yeah. So what MacReady finds out about the head, this is important. It's not just supposed to be creepy. What MacReady finds out about the head separating is that each individual part of the thing has its own survival instinct. Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. No blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. 
crawl away from a hot needle, Sam. Which makes perfect sense if mm-hmm. you think about it in the cell. Right. In the cell form. The right. S- each, each individual cell... cell is doing something. They're working together. Yeah. But if they need to jet, they will. Mm-hmm. Which is why, like, in the remake, when the arms get separated and they each have a life of their own, this is with the head. So what he figures out is that each of these cells are, are as a group, are going to try to survive on their own, uh, separate from the main body, which includes blood cells. And so he devises a way to get some wire, heat it up, and dip it into a Petri dish of somebody's blood. And if it just fizzles and smokes, then you're fine. But if the blood tries to get away and protect itself, then we know that you're a thing. And I love that the creature just keeps waiting. Because they do it several times. Yes. So, like, they'll see, okay, uh, Nalls, he's human, right? So now he's on my side. So he gives, McCready gives Nalls a flamethrower. Right. But then he'll do the next person. Oh, if the next person is an alien, he'll wait until the blood shows itself. Yeah. And then, okay, okay, the next person. Oh, he's human. Great. Then the next person. Oh, that's an alien. We'll wait until the blood reacts. It's like uh it will wait until the very last second to show Uh itself. And so it's, it's really dedicated to keeping up this ruse. And so it's Palmer. It's down to three people. Childs, Palmer, and Gary. And... Palmer's blood freaks out and that's when Palmer his like I think his face rips open or something happens like that um Palmer starts freaking out and their childs and Gary are still tied to the same bench that Palmer's on they're like get us off of here get us off of here it's really really funny uh but he ends up getting loose and attacking windows and again these flamethrowers aren't working and he just picks up windows by the top half and starts swallowing him and Windows ends up dying in this process, which sucks because Windows is really cool. Uh, He's always on McCready's side. He was. And McCready is, uh, he burns both of them. And they continue to test the others. And that includes Childs. And I really like this because every time somebody gets tested, they're really nervous. Yeah, because... Somebody, I think it's McCready, at some point says, because somebody asks, you know, if I if I was, would I know? I think it's Nalls. I think Nalls yeah. asks, if I was taken, would I know? And McCready says, you'd know. But, but they don't fucking yeah. know. Who knows know. what it feels like to be taken over by the alien? Right. We know that they get devoured. Right. And so. But we don't know what it does to your psyche because it. Right. It. it uh, it knows and thinks everything you want. Yes. Uh-huh. So who knows? And that's going to be important later. So they decide they need to test Blair. So Childs guards the others. And the rest go to find that Blair has escaped. He's not in the tool shed outside. But they find that there's a tunnel underneath the tool shed. And they follow it down. And there's a workspace and everything. And Blair has been building his own Flying saucer. So they're like, well, shit. (laughs) Blair is obviously a thing. (laughs) Son of a bitch. Uh, So during this process, somebody sees Childs leave. Because he's like left alone, I think, at one point. And so then he leaves. And then the generator gets destroyed. And so they're thinking, 
Mer McCready thinks that, okay, here's the thing's plan. It needs to be alone. It needs to hibernate. It needs to wait for the rescue team to show up. That's what it's going to do. And McCready, Gary, and Nalls are like, we can't let that happen. We need to blow this whole thing up. Because they're men and they have a responsibility. They don't know where Blair is. They don't know where Childs is. And Childs has been left alone. So he might be turned at this point. We don't know. And so they go setting out explosives everywhere. And they even have a classic TNT plunger and everything. And while they're down there, Gary gets killed by Blair. Nalls hears something and he goes off. And then McCready gets attacked. We get this cool under the floorboards kind of thing where all the floorboards pop up as it chases after him. And they fight. And this creature, which used to be Blair, starts fighting McCready. And he ends up setting off an, the explosion inside the thing and kills And it's, it blows up the whole station, the whole outpost, and we'd never find out what happened to Nalls, but he is most certainly dead in that explosion. So, McCready survives the explosion, and everything's on fire, and he runs into Childs. Childs says he saw Blair run off, and he went to chase him, and then he got lost in the storm. Which is totally believable. Totally believable. Except not believable that he could make his way back. But, but I mean, there's the big explosion and there's the fire. So he could find his way point. back. That's, wh- that's how he found his way back. And that's why he doesn't show up until then. But it's also something that a child's thing would say. So they sit down and they, they, they chat for a while and they're like, it's just the two of us and we're going to die. So... Fuck. What do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. And it's at this point that McCready hands Childs a bottle of scotch. Childs drinks it. McCready smiles. Credits. That's the end of the movie. With McCready and Childs almost certainly freezing to death before the rescue crew can ever show up. Now, a lot of people think that that ending means that Childs is a thing. For a couple reasons. The smile means the fact that Childs drank some of that is meaningful to McCready. And probably he's a little nihilistic at this point. And he's like, of course, of course he's a thing, right? That's what it means to him. We also don't see McCready drink from that bottle. So we get no confirmation that it is drinkable. We also know that McCready has been carrying around tons of Molotov cocktails, which are his J&B scotch bottles filled with kerosene. And so people think that it was a test. He took one of the Molotov cocktails, handed it to Childs. Childs drinks it. And he says, you know, he, he doesn't react to the fact that it's gasoline. McCready knows that he's a thing, but it, Maybe he he smiles because he's like, okay, now I got to kill Childs before I die. But we don't get to see that. 
It leaves it ambiguous. But I'm sorry, it's not ambiguous. Childs is human. Childs is human. Childs is human. I love that explanation of him. I, I love that if you could take that scene in isolation. But you cannot take that scene in isolation. There are a few things wrong with it. Number one, we discover in this movie, and it's really heavily reinforced in the prequel, that they cannot replicate inorganic material and they reject any of that, which is why the clothes get all torn up and everything. Childs is wearing an earring, which we know from the pre-makewell, specifically even earrings are not replicated. Okay, that's support. Second, McCready has tons of these J&B scotch bottles full of scotch. They're fucking everywhere. So the fact that he would have a bottle still have scotch in it, not a big surprise. (laughs) number two john carpenter came out and specifically said no they're both human the only thing we did know at this point was that mccready was not right he could have been (laughs) yeah that's true that's true (laughs) here we go again (laughs) i mean he was just we we didn't see him for a while (laughs) i don't know if that's two or three and the next thing There is a canon video game that came out in 2002 in which Childs and McCready are both human. There is no scenario where Childs is is a thing. I'm sorry, because I really like that twist and that ambiguity at the end. But there is no ambiguity. Every bit of evidence leans towards, except for us thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool if (laughs) everything points to Childs being human. What do you think about that? I mean, if the fucking director came out and said it, you can't really argue against it. He also did come out and say it around the time that the video game was going to come out. So he might just be supporting something that was officially canon. But I mean, and for all for all accounts, he, you know, is happy about the video video game. He wasn't upset that it was coming out. If they do the earring thing, I never noticed that he had an earring. But if Mm -hmm. that's part of it, then absolutely. I don't think he was an alien. So lightning round. I'd like to start off with saying that John Carpenter thinks that this is his favorite movie of his. Thinks that it's his favorite movie? He doesn't know? He considers it to be his favorite movie. Uh. Thinks, considers. I don't mean thinks in assumes. I mean thinks as in considers. Thanks for the clarification. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, I... That's surprising. I would think that Halloween would be. But it is a fantastic movie, so good for him. Yeah. This is one of the few John Carpenter films early on in his career, actually the first early on in his career, that he directed but did not score. The soundtrack was done by Ennio Morricone, who did... Wah, wah, wah. Wah, wah, wah. That's really the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's really interesting because the part when they're walking through the Norwegian spot... I noticed there were really high strings being played. Yeah. And they're like deep basses too. Like it's 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 kind of a throbbing soundtrack to set up tent this tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was nominated for an Razzie Award that year. Why? For what? For the score. The score was nominated for a Razzie Award. That's unbelievable. And right. I, I don't understand how this movie did so poorly. Uh-huh. I mean, I guess it's probably the body horror. It probably turns a lot of people off. Well, well, I'll talk about some of the reviews at the end. I think this movie's fantastic. I think it's a crime that this was nominated for a Razzie for the score. And since Ennio Morricone scored The Hateful Eight, 
which was a huge get for Quentin Tarantino. He's always wanted him to do a score for him. Uh, it's a good movie. Especially a Western, right? It's a Western, which Ennio Morricone is famous for for, for scoring, Set that takes winter. place in the middle of a snowstorm. <laughs> and he used some of the music that he made for the thing, but never actually put in the movie. Interesting. For The Hateful Eight. Nice. Yeah. Hateful Eight's a great movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Don't know if I'll ever be able to watch it again. It's long. And it's hard to watch. It, it is kind of hard to watch. Anyway, so a couple things. So I don't know how anyone could ever become accustomed to living in Antarctica. <laughs> right? It's nuts. I No. McCready, just, just no. <laughs> the first time we see McCready, he's playing chess against a computer, and he calls it a cheater, and then he pours his scotch Cheating into bitch. it. Yeah. He, he opens up its... its, its um, I guess it's a panel where you would put the memory board in and just pours his scotch it's into it. Is it. It's modem? No, it's not. It's modem. <laughs> I don't know anything about computers. That's okay. He wears an awful hat. Every I love that Every time he's out in the fucking winter. I love that hat. No, it's awful. I love it. What is it even? I don't understand. It's like a sideways cowboy hat. It doesn't almost. keep him warm. Why is he wearing it? He just looks stupid. I think it keeps his uh, his hoodie on because oh. they're in a very windy stupid helicopter and he wears it whenever he flies a helicopter. He throws his hoodie up over. He pulls it tight. He puts the hat on on top of the hoodie and then pulls the chin strap of the hat under his chin. Okay. So it keeps everything on it. If anybody remembers that gigantic, stupid brown hat that Pharrell Williams wore to the VMAs like a year or two or three ago, whatever it was. It was like five years ago, but yeah. <laughs> it looks like that, only even worse. No. Yeah. No. It's just imagine a cowboy hat, but instead of the sides going up, it's the front and back. That's what it is. It's a very classic Western look, but we know it from movies as being like, you know, the dudes wearing red long johns and nothing else wear a hat like that. You know, <laughs> that's what you would think of. There is a lot of overacting, especially in the beginning when people are responding to what they're being told. Yeah. And some of the writing is a little over the top. Like I said, I, I wish I could, I wish I had written down some of the lines, but I didn't. But from the first scene where they're kind of all told, like, hey, we found this fucking thing and mm -hmm. it ain't good. Uh, they all kind of overreact a little bit. I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> I think you might go crazy being in Antarctica anyway, so. Let's talk about some of the special effects. Okay. First of all, they duplicated the title reveal of the thing from the original. Yep. It uses the same process. Do you want to know how they do it? I know how they do it, but go ahead and tell the audience. Fuck you then. Go ahead. Okay, so here's what they do. They take an animation cell that they can draw on and they, they write the thing on it, but in reverse. So the thing is clear, everything else is black. And they put that behind a fish tank. And the fish tank is filled with like water and smoke and then they cover the fish tank with a black bag and they light it from behind and then they burn the bag which reveals the thing and you get the light rays coming through it so it's very cool it is very very cool 
Uh, also, the person who was responsible for doing most of the practical work, who was in charge of all that, was Rob Botton. <laughs> There's a lot of story going on here about Rob Botton. Uh, he wanted to be in the movie, and the crew practically revolted because there was so much to do, and he was already spending all of his time there, and he was he ha- eventually had a breakdown and had like couldn't work for a while because he was just doing too much. And so Stan Winston, famous Stan Winston came in and did work in his absence. And so Stan Winston did a lot of the work on the dog thing, which is also very famous of its head splitting open the whip things coming out, all of that. But he said, it would be kind of offensive to him to take credit away from Rob Botton, who was in charge of all this stuff. So he wanted no credit. So he's not officially credited in the movie. But Rob Botton, he was out due to exhaustion at the time because he was just working way, 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 way too hard. It was during the dog thing scene that I remembered why I never watched this movie. Because dogs die and then it grows spider legs. <laughs> Everything I hate. Yes. Yeah. Also, yeah, I think the I think the um special effects terrified me as a child. Which we're looking at them now, they look you can tell they're puppets, but like when I was a kid It's freaky, yeah, me. totally. But they're still legitimately very creepy looking. I don't like looking at them. <laughs> yeah, totally. Very, very effective. I want to talk about the shot about of the dog going into the room. This is something I wrote down. Okay. Uh, that scene where the dog goes into the room plays is really tense. If you've never seen the movie before, you have no idea what's going on. You don't know that the dog is an alien. You don't know that whoever's in there is going to turn into an alien. And so you don't know to be afraid that you don't know who that person is, right? There's a lot of don't knows. And if you know what's going on, oh man, that's really tense and really interesting. And the movie plays it like you should know that something bad is happening right now. But having never seen the movie before, you would have no idea. So instead, an otherwise innocuous scene of a dog walking down a hallway and going into a room to get pet by a dude is really played as being like dreadful. Like it enhances that that sense of dread that you have and you have no idea why, which well, plays into that whole paranoia aspect. I, I disagree with the idea that people have no idea because they saw the Norwegians shooting at the dog. So they know there's something up with the dog. Right, but you have no idea what. Right, but if you saw the trailer, I'm sure you have an idea of what you're walking into. No. Trailers, fuck trailers. I love trailers, but I hate, hate, hate that they undermine what the movie was trying to do 100% of the time. 100% of the time, a trailer undermines a film because the film was created to reveal things to you, visual, sound, dialogue, plot, in a particular order for a particular reason, and a trailer completely fucks with that. It shows you all sorts of stuff, even if it doesn't spoil it for you, it still reveals things to you that the filmmaker did not intend to be revealed to you yet. And so that really, really bothers me. I still watch trailers anyway. <laughs> All right. So Kelsey, hmm. what do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? 93. 83. Hmm. 
grimmer and more terrifying than the 1950s take, John Carpenter's The Thing is a tense sci-fi thriller rife with compelling tension and some remarkable makeup effects. On Metacritic, it did not fare so well. It got a 57. Wow. Newsweek's David Anson at the time gave it a 30, or what is equivalent to a 30, saying there's a big difference between shock effects and suspense, and in sacrificing everything at the altar of gore, Carpenter sabotages the drama. The thing is so single-mindedly determined to keep you awake that it almost puts you to sleep. Oh, I disagree. It's saying that all the effects and everything like that, and I, I can see why people think this, all the effects and the creature stuff takes away from the real impact of the movie, which is the paranoia. I disagree. The New York Times' Vincent Canby gave it a similar 30, saying, The thing is too phony looking to be disgusting. It qualifies only as instant junk. Wow. Yes. Also from David Anson in the Newsweek article, he called it an example of the new aesthetic, atrocity for atrocity's sake. Alan Spencer from Starlog says John Carpenter was never meant to direct science fiction horror movies. He's better suited to direct traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings. Wow. And Christian Nyby said publicly, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. John Carpenter has said in the past, uh, he particularly pointing out Nyby's review that he takes when his movies fail, he takes it pretty hard. Uh, This one, because it's his favorite movie and the fact that critically it was highly panned really hit him the hardest of any of his failures. So yeah, it failed in the box office. Critics hated it. People that went to saw it hated it and it didn't get popular until after the fact, which is why Rotten Tomatoes, 83% is in retrospect, really. But it still incorporates some of these older critical reviews, so it's not quite as high as the 93 that you guessed. Roger Ebert gave it two and a half stars out of his normal four, so it comes down to a 63 as far as Metacritic's concerned. I hate that about Metacritic, but that's a conversation for another time. He says, The thing is basically just a geek show, a gross-out movie in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen. There's nothing wrong with that. I like being scared, and I was scared by many scenes in the thing. But it seems clear that Carpenter made his choice early on to concentrate on the special effects and the technology and to allow the story and people to become secondary. I disagree. I I suppose if it had been the first time I had seen it, maybe I'd walk out and all I could think about would be the the puppets. Perhaps. Yeah. But... The first time I remember really sitting down and watching it, because I, re- I have memories of it being, like, on TV and, like, being like, oh, my God, you know, like, scared mm-hmm. of the thing. Yeah. Is really in college. And I think I went into it with the, the short story in mind. And feeling at the time, I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess maybe if you went back in time, I'd probably agree with these people. But seeing it now... That's not what I focus on. I mean, I think you're right about the first time watching it, right? We, we we talked a lot about how there's a lot of details and stuff that you don't even know to be looking for until your second, third, fourth, fifth viewing. And so this, this movie is an onion, <laughs> like Ogres. Like Ogres, the movie is an onion. But I think 
that's because it is such a shocking movie when it comes to the effects. And that's fine to just really sit down and appreciate that the first time through because it is something worth appreciating. It's very impressive. And then you go through and you watch it and you pick up the other stuff. But what's really disappointing me is that all of these reviews that I've seen, they talk about two things. They talk about the creature stuff and they talk about the gore in general. And Carpenter was successful. I think that's what he intended to do was have that be foremost and that's what really grabs your attention because it is the most shocking thing but you're but, meant but you're meant to uncover the layers but right the paranoia is there from no, the no. get go I know it totally is I'm not saying that the movie changes that he goes in and he makes a different edit and the second time you see it it's a li- literally different movie no it's all there you just don't see it until the second or third time and you start catching things like windows dropping those keys like the first time through how would you even know to look for that because the blood being destroyed and the fact that there was only one set of keys and nobody knows where they are hadn't even happened yet so you can't even possibly appreciate that until at least the second time you see the movie yeah and i think that people are forgetting I know if you were to read it now, you'd be like, oh my god, this thing has three red eyes and it has purple wiggly hair that seems to still be alive. That sounds silly. At the time when it was written in 38, uh that was petrifying. Yes. Oh my god, alien life forms. They could look like that? Oh my god, so scary. He just brought it into modern times. And if he hadn't, if he had kept it the way that they described it in the book, it would look silly. But I think my ultimate concern with these reviews is that we've talked a lot in this episode and within discussing these reviews about the function, the content And we're not talking a lot about the form the film takes and the decisions that are made, the cinematography, the editing, things like that. I think this movie is exceptionally paced to keep that tension high. And it's like a roller coaster of ups and downs of excitement and dead quiet. And that really accentuates the paranoia. I think it has some beautiful shots. I think the explosions in the middle of the night, in the middle of a snowstorm, are incredible. I think the way they filmed the snowstorm was incredible. I loved the aerial shots. I think it's a very, very well-made movie, content aside. I think, yeah, when you bring that up, that makes me... I did, the thing is, is that I only think about pacing when I don't like it. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. If a movie just grabs me and I'm just sucked into it from the get-go, like You're I am when I watch the that. thing... I don't consider it. But yeah, when you bring it up, absolutely. This movie is brilliantly paced. It it does slow down at times, but when it's necessary. It's intentionally. When yeah, it uh-huh. works for the story and it speeds up sometimes, when it works for That's the story. That's that roller coaster I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's really well done. So what would you give it? Probably an 86. That's really close to what I was going to say, which was 87. I wouldn't give it higher than that. Because it does suffer from the fact that, like I said, when I see it now, all I can see is that it's a puppet. Right? It still scares me. 
I still don't like looking at it. I don't want to be in a room with it sitting there, sitting at, staring at me. Right. And the alternative. But, but I know that it's a puppet. And when I see it move, I can see that it's a puppet. And that's a problem. You can't help it. It was the 80s. I understand that. Right. And it's still hugely preferable to anything else we could possibly Absolutely. do. Absolutely. It's, it's a million times better than the CG. Which we will talk about when we talk about the remake. The pre- the but, pre-makewold. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it can't help that it was made in the 80s. It still was made in the 80s. It still looks fake. Yeah. And that sucks for that. But it's the way it is. Also, it made some odd choices. Like I said, I don't get why McCready is a helicopter pilot. Why would anyone put their trust when they're all scientists? I think we're ta- we talked about this. I know that you gave me your reasoning. I don't agree with it. The one scientist that they started following lost his fucking mind. And the point is, is that people are freaking out. People are willing to murder other people. And what they need is somebody that can intimidate people into doing what he wants them to do. And who is even tempered? who isn't going to go off the deep end himself. And that's exactly what McCready was. Sometimes the smartest person is not the best leader. I get that, but I feel like it I feel like it intensified what I said in my in my essay. It's a man's job. Yeah. Men take care of this stuff. Well, the other part of it, and I think this ties into your essay is that there are literally no women in this entire movie. Absolutely. Yeah. At one point, there was a woman working in the crew, and then she had to leave for some reason. Either she got injured or she got pregnant. Something like that happened, and she was forced to leave. And then she was replaced by a man, just by the company she worked for. And the entire crew and the entire cast were nothing but men. So that kind of builds into that. But we're talking about this station in the middle of nowhere where people are going to be there for long stretches of time inhabited by only men, masculinity is going to become a factor. Good and bad. It's really funny. Again, I haven't seen it, but in the first film, there's a woman. And obviously, based on what I've seen from images, she's there to just be a damsel in distress. Well, but and, still, she's there. And a love interest. She was there, there because the studio put her there, despite what you know to be in the short story, which is that there are no women in the short story either. Mm-hmm. It was another change that the studio made to the original. Mm-hmm. All right. That is 1982's John Carpenter's The Thing. I know I'm human. And if you were all these things, then you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're going to find out who's who. Before we move on to the pre-makewolf from 2011, Kelsey, what's your next question on Slash Cards? In what year was Tom Holland's Fright Night released? 86. 85. Damn it! Damn it! So close. 
So close. Oh, man. Now I'm mad because this one's going to be too easy. (laughs) Five friends find themselves trapped in a remote cabin as a horror film unfurls around them in this 2012 film. Strange. Things get stranger when they discover the secret behind the horror. Cabin in the Woods. That is correct. I'm so excited for when we get to do Cabin in the Woods. Kelsey, let's talk about 2011's The Thing. Written, again, originally the short story who goes there by John W. Campbell Jr. The script was written by Eric Heiserer, and it was directed by Matthias Van Heiningen Jr., um, I don't know how you pronounce this. H-E-I-J-N-I-N-G-E-N. Heiningen, I would guess. And I'm guessing it's Matthias because it's M-A-T-T-H-I-J-S. It's not Mathiges because they don't they pronounce their J's differently. Usually it's Matthias. Okay, maybe it's Matthias. Starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Joel Edgerton, and Ulrich Thompson. What is the premise? Of 2011's The Thing. So as we've already said, this is a pre-makequel, which means that it is a prequel that they have decided to make as a sequel, which, and it's and kind of a remake. It's basically a remake. It's the same story. I mean, it it's giving you the prequel. It's showing you what happened with the Norwegians who originally found and excavated the spaceship and the alien. But in large concept it's effectively a remake yes because it doesn't it tells the same type of story with the same type of beats with the same emphasis on paranoia and action and it's the same monster literally days before this starts so like it's basically a remake just not with the same characters they're like oh there's another story that's almost exactly the same that happened immediately before this one let's just make that instead so we're not doing a remake and getting people pissed off at us mm-hmm. but they couldn't think of a better title than the thing <laughs> so they just called it the thing again literally that's the reason they wanted people to and come and it confused people nobody knew that it was a prequel or was it a remake and so it kind of was a remake anyway so that's why we say pre-makequel mhm should people watch it before listening to the rest of this episode if you've already seen the thing nah. i don't think you need to yeah it's not necessary. It's not nearly as bad as everyone says it is. Yeah. Everyone told me how awful this movie was going to be. It's not that bad. It's not good either. Mm-hmm. It's not a piece of shit. It's got it's got quality to it. I think Ramona Flowers is actually pretty good in it. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I mean, it's the story of the thing, which is a great story. So if you've already seen the original, you don't need to see this one. Yes, a prequel to a remake of an adaptation (laughs) of a novella published in 1938. So if you've always been curious, go ahead and watch it. It's not a bad movie, but it's wholly unnecessary, I think, is our issue with it. The one big difference that it decides to make Mm -hmm. is its biggest downfall. And we'll get to that. So go ahead and watch it or not, and when we get back, we will talk about 2011's The Thing? We found something quite remarkable. Did you hear that? This thing has replicated a person. That's not possible. It's like a virus. 
Not all of us are human. Kelsey, hmm. Uh, what happens in the thing from 2011? The thing from 2011 is very similar to the original story, except that this time we get to see what happened before the dog showed up at McCready's camp. And so we get to see what happens with the Norwegians, but it's not just Norwegians, there are also a couple of Americans in the mix, including Miss Ramona Flowers. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She is an American paleontologist, which is very difficult to believe, given how gorgeous she is. Oh, you just insulted all the paleontologists out there. Well, I was just going to say, in 1982. (laughs) I guess. It wasn't a big career move for women in the 80s, I don't think, especially Uh in the very early 80s. All those STEM fields. Yeah, but she is approached by a guy who we just kind of assume is her boyfriend. Yeah, we don't ever really even get confirmation of that, but it seems like they are. She's at work. And she's studying, like, a saber-toothed tiger or something like that? They never say. And he tells her, the guy I work for has found something and he's extremely excited about it. And I think that you should come to Antarctica and help us study it. And when she meets the guy, they automatically don't really go well together. Yes, because she is a willful young woman. And he is an established, distinguished male scientist, and he can't have any of that. And throughout the movie, there's a lot of this conflict between the two of them. Yeah, I think tension is right. I think you're right. In the future, don't contradict me in front of those people again. I just thought it. You're not here to think. You're here to get his things safely out of the ice. I hope we understand each other. And it's completely ridiculous, and it's all on him. And she's 100% right every step of the way through this movie. Yep. Uh, she, she's essentially the McCready of this film. Right. She has almost no faults. And there's not really even ever a time, unlike with McCready, that I can think of, where we ever think that she might be the thing. Mm, towards the end, there's a little bit of suspicion there. but I guess. From here, she's told, hey, we found an alien, basically. <laughs> And she goes to Antarctica and they find him. First, they find the spaceship and it's in unlike in the movie originally in the original movie. It's not in this crevasse thing. It's instead in this giant cave. Yeah. Underneath the ice. Mm -hmm. They still come to the same conclusion that. Well, they found it by falling through the ice. Right. Yeah. And then they find the alien not that deep into the surface level of the ice. And so the beginning of this movie, different from the other one, mainly boils down to them discussing how this is the find of the of the millennium, about how this is huge, how do we get it out of here, how do we test it properly, and all of that. So that's different from the original thing. After that... It's pretty similar, so I don't think we need to go through beat by beat the plot points. Yeah, and right out the gate, 
when we started the movie, it's like a lot of the worry that we have is not there. Because we know everyone's going to die. We know they're yeah. going to die. So it's just like... The only thing that me and Chris were like, okay, well, maybe somebody gets out. And we just Some, don't know about it. Right. In the timeline of the original version. Right. Um, but so a lot of like, like I said, us worrying about the characters is already gone. Because I'm like, well, you're all going to die anyway. So <laughs> none of this really matters. Right. I think unlike the original where you have to come to terms with the fact that the characters have resigned themselves to the fact that they're going to die. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, they're like, we're not going to get out of here. We just need to make sure this thing doesn't get out of here. They come to the same conclusion in this movie. But it doesn't hurt as much because we knew ahead of time that that was going to be the conclusion. Right. But it does come down to how does she figure out who is a thing and how does she destroy it? And what's the main way of finding out whether or not somebody is a thing? She discovers uh, that they, kind of like what they say in the original about the fact that it cuts through clothes, it can't take on inorganic material. And she figures that out because she finds a bunch of um, fake teeth. Yes, she finds some, some, some caps in a pile of blood, mm -hmm. in, a, in a bloody mess in a shower, and she takes the teeth, but when she goes back later, the blood's been cleaned up. This is how she knows that one of them has already changed. What are those? I think they're fillings from someone's teeth. I found them by a puddle of blood in the shower. Puddle of blood? It can clone cells, but not inorganic material. It couldn't copy these, so it spit them out. We wasted too much time already. Losh! Listen! When I went back to check it, someone had cleaned up the blood. Someone had wiped it away. All right, so whatever it is, it is still... Here. Another big difference here is we actually get the conflicting ideas of whether or not to thaw the creature, which we didn't get right. in the first film. And that is in the short story. When they find it, there's a big argument over whether or not they should actually thaw it. And it's a pretty small argument in the film, but it is essential because it shows that Winstead is against it. And I think that's kind of why they put it there, to let us know, okay, Winstead is our uh, the one that we agree with. She is the, our character. That yeah. makes sense? The audience's character. Yeah. And, of course, when she says, you know, she disapproves of thawing it, the doctor basically tells her, you aren't here to think. You're here to work. Yeah. So. Which, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Because she's a paleontologist, she's the one that basically knows how to get it out preserving the sample. Like, that's her job. Her job is not to think anything else. Right. Everything we see that is also seen in the original at the Norwegian site is, like, to the most minute detail replicated. So if they we didn't see it in the original, then they can do whatever they want with it. But if we did, then yeah. So a lot of this movie comes down to ultimately explaining how things got the way they did at the Norwegian site from the original film. For instance, we see a character merge with another human and it has two heads. Well, McCready comes across that at the Norwegian site. 
in the original. There is a there's an axe in the wall and Joel Edgerton throws that axe and it gets stuck in the wall. So like it a lot of the smaller details of this movie are just hey, we're going to explain how everything got the way that they did. We didn't need it. Nah. We really didn't need it. Also, I'd like to point out that it actually made no difference if they unthought it or not, because it comes to life and breaks through the ice. Yes, but the fact is that they drilled into it first. I suppose. And that's what woke it up, I think. I suppose. I guess. I also thought it was odd that they chose to start with the dog again, when in reality, it picks the dog because it needs to be able to survive out in the cold. Yeah. Like a dog would. Mm-hmm. So why would it choose a dog at first? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it just doesn't know who the dominant species is. I suppose. They seem to be taking care of this animal. <laughs> but also at the same time, again, this is my biggest problem with this movie. And I I would argue that it's the biggest difference between it and the original. It's the fact that the monster is not afraid to show itself this time. Yeah. We, at least at first, yeah. We see it change we see it attack in front of other people constantly throughout this film and i think that's because this filmmaker thought that what was scary about the original film was the changing was the bizarre puppets So, so let's talk about that okay when she finds the filling she runs outside and tries to flag down the american helicopter pilots Joel Edgerton is one of these pilots. And how do we know Joel Edgerton? He's in a lot of things. If you're looking for horror movies or thrillers, he's in... The Gift. The Gift, and It Comes at Night. Which we haven't seen. Which we have not seen. But he's taking a man who has been hurt and is sick or something like that, and another man, like the doctor or something, to the American site, I think... They're going to go to the American site in the original movie because they need the the medical supplies or whatever that they have there. And as they're flying away, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is like waving them down. Because she thought the sick guy had turned. Right, right, right. Because, oh man, he's been showing a lot of really weird symptoms. And Joel Edgerton's like, what's she doing? We should probably turn around. And his co-pilot's like, dude, this is our chance. We can just get out of here. Mm-hmm. And because there's a big storm coming, as we know, because it right. happens in the yeah. original, and they're worried they're going to get stuck there. Right. And so he's like, okay. <laughs> like, like they know that the thing's already broken out, that the thing exists at this point. And they're like, let's just get away from this thing. But Joel Edgerton is like, no, I think we should probably find out what's going on. And lands the helicopter again, or goes to land the helicopter and we see the sick guy. He's like, oh, uh, oh, we're like, uh-oh. And then he's like, hey, are you okay, man? He looks over at the other dude in the helicopter whose face splits open. <laughs> oh, fake out. Wasn't that guy. It was the other guy. And this, I wrote down, oh, man, that first fully CGI bit with the dude in the helicopter looked, uh, I mean, not Scorpion King bad. No, it's not as bad as the Scorpion King, but it's not great either. No, but then later on I have a note here that says, okay, it's 2011's version of the Scorpion King. Yeah. It is not good, especially the faces. So apparently 
the creature effects were actually done with animatronics originally. And because the, the director wanted it that way. Okay. And if they saw what they had to react to, then they would get better performances out of them. Right. Um, and then they would just augment it with computer-generated graphics. Okay. But due to some problems with the animatronics, maybe they didn't behave convincingly. Also, due to studio influence, they covered over all that stuff. Every last animatronic with awful, awful CGI. And not like, oh, practical effects are better than CGI always. No. No. You will not find me jumping on that bandwagon. Although Kelsey might be. <laughs> I am not on that bandwagon. These are just god-awful CGI effects. They're very bad. They're just really bad. To the point where I think it was rushed. Because apparently it was only finished two weeks before it opened. Oh my god. Yes. Because... They had already cut a version, and then the studio, Universal, like, had them change it a bunch and make all these strange changes. And I don't know everything that it, that they changed. I don't think it was just the CGI stuff, but, oh, man, I'm kind of curious to see that director's cut. But, well, anyway, I mean, what I was saying is clearly that's what he thought scared people. Yeah. Because that's what he focused on, and he showed it way too many times, and it was shown to the whole group. So there's no more, like, paranoia, like, is it really here? Is it our imagination? No, it full-on converges with people in front of other people. Yeah. Several times. Yeah. And one of the big problems is that... <laughs> It's also hard to keep track of everything because it's all chaotic like that. It's hard to keep track of who's who. And when we see the thing, it's hard to, t to tell, okay, wait, which character was that? There's basically one Norwegian that we actually know and that we can that we can track reliably. <laughs> and that that's Thormund? <laughs> that's Thormund Giantsbane from uh, Game of Thrones. Really his name? Thormund Giantsbane? Oh, I thought you meant, I didn't I thought it was Tormund. That's how you said it. Sorry, no, I think it is Tormund. You're right. His name is Christopher Heavju or or Heavju or I don't oh, know okay. how you actually uh, pronounce it. But yeah, his name is Tormund Giantsbane. <laughs> you're right. Uh, he's he's the redhead dude. Of the wildlings, if you watch Game of Thrones. The one who's he, in love with Brienne. Yes. He is <laughs> totally awesome in this, and I love him in this. And, of course, we know he dies. But other than that, like, it's really hard to keep track of any of these guys. And the Scorpion Kingness I wrote here, is so bad that sometimes it's hard to tell who the thing is supposed to be. <laughs> and it doesn't help that the editing is so bad that... One of the characters, it just cuts to this character crawling backwards, and then all of a sudden, the thing jumps on it and kills him. And like, wait, who was that? What led up to that? Like, just, we never saw him get originally attacked. It's just crawl backwards and then attack and then dead. And it's like, wait, which one were you? <laughs> How did you get in this position? And who are you going to be when you turn into a, into a thing later? Like, it's so difficult, and the CGI really is not helping. Once they realize that it's, I mean, you know, it's alive, it's taken people over, whatever, they have a specimen, they have a person, a human being, who has been changed, and they have killed it. And the doctor, the one who earlier told Winstead that her job is not to think, 
Yeah. Says, as scientists, we are obliged to study it. And, like, other people are like, what the fuck? Like, that was a person. And he's like, no, we have to. And he goes, it's fascinating. And I love this moment because the actor, the character, like, realizes, oh, my God, I just said that out loud. Yeah. That, like, I think it's fascinating to be able to study a human who has been killed by this other creature. And he says, it is fascinating. Like, fuck you guys. (laughs) I'm a scientist. This is what I do. And I I liked that. I thought it was an interesting choice to make him so self-aware. But with due respect, we need to examine the remains before it all disintegrates. Hey, that was a man, not remains. No, I know I'm talking about the creature. And... I'm sure we're all aware of the importance of this discovery. This may be the first and only time mankind has been visited by an alien life form. And uh, scientists, we're obliged to study it. It shows that he does know the things that he says have effect on people, you know? Like, he knew what he was doing when he told Winstead, your job is not to think. He knows what he did when he said this is fascinating. He realizes, I've just hurt a lot of people's feelings, and I probably got a lot of people really upset (laughs) with me. So Sander, Ulrich Thompson, this is the the main character guy, the main, the head of the team. He eventually becomes the primary bad guy thing in this when he changes and he chases Mary Elizabeth Winstead and they end up making it to the spaceship and we see the inside of the spaceship and it's powered on and there's this weird thing. It kind of looks like. Uh, in the Power Rangers movie or in Man of Steel when we see the Kryptonian technology with all the blocks kind of moving around and stuff like that. We see that interface, but ultimately this is just a set piece. Nothing really major happens here. The jet engines things or whatever open up and she falls into it and that's how she gets inside and it's all kind of pointless, but she ends up defeating Sander, who is at this point, I think, the two-headed monster, right? Don't or, know. or no, I don't remember. Oh, it's so hard to keep track. She's about to get in one of these snow crawler things with Joel Edgerton. At this point, Joel Edgerton was in that crash. Yes. And when they got back, it made no sense how they survived. Right. And she was like, we can't just kill them until we know. Right. Like, so that was the right thing to do. I wrote down she did the right thing by not just straight up killing the Americans like some of the people there wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But she's going to regret it. And so this is the moment where we're not sure, but we get decisive action, kind of contrary to what happens in the original one. She's about to get in, and then she stops, and he's like, what? And she's like, something to the effect of, you know how I know you weren't a thing? And he said, why? And she says, well, because the thing wouldn't have been able to replicate your earring. And she points to his ear, and he goes up to feel his ear, and she's like, it was on the other ear. And that's how she knows he's a thing. Mm-hmm. And then she blows, set, sets him on fire. But we never see him change. Yeah. No, he's like, no, wait, wait, wait. And she just puts him up in flames. You know how I knew you were human? When you showed it back at base? No. Your earring. It was your other ear. Stop, Doc. Stop. 
That's kind of the end of the movie. We never know what happens to her. And during the credits, we kind of cut to the rescue team showing up, a helicopter, and Lars, <laughs> who is the Somehow only one survived. who survived. We don't know how. Chasing down the, the dog and is like, get in the air, get in the air, and we're going to chase down the dog. And it's them just shooting at the dog. Yeah. So the only character from, the, from, the, from this movie, from the pre-makequel, who actually is in the original 1982 version, is Lars. That's it. The other guy in the helicopter is somebody we never get a name. He hardly talks until the, at the very end. He just shows up so they can link the two movies together. It's really, really tenuous. I, I wasn't really satisfied with that, to be honest. Yeah. So a couple things... So, first of all, they make the creature dumber, like I said, but they also make him more resilient. There are times um, when they're trying to kill a thing and they fire, they put fire on it, just like they do in the original, and it just keeps coming back and they have yeah. to keep torching it over yeah. and over again. So, it's like he became, he became smarter, but he became less resilient at the same time somehow. Yeah. There's a great line. I have no idea who says it, but somebody who's become very paranoid is like, don't move, demons. <laughs> great. Oh, we didn't talk about how, how they separate them is instead of heating up the blood samples with the wire, they inspect their mouths. And if they Which have is an unfair fillings, thing, because if you didn't have fillings. No, no, no. They recognize that. They say, you're going over here in this group. These are people we can confirm are not things. These are people we can't confirm. Mm -hmm. And so you're just in the we don't know camp. That's all they are. But a bunch of them are things. About half of them we can't confirm and during that scene because they don't have fillings or they're porcelain, mm -hmm. which is what Sander says. Mm -hmm. So that's the little parallel there to the original movie. I don't know why I'm I, – I feel like I'm angry about this movie. And it – it wasn't bad. It was just, I think we said it in the last section, it's just unnecessary. At it's not one, like they had some new way to show this cool new thing. We weren't ready for that yet. I agree. And at one point, there's a character who's become a thing, but I think he just, he's been hurt or something, and they're carrying him in. And as they're carrying him in, his arms just pop off. Yeah, uh-huh. Like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> That's their version of the parts of the thing trying to, like, having their own mind. Is the it ha the arms. But there was no reason yeah. for them to come off. <laughs> they're just carrying him in. They have no idea he's a thing. They think he's a human. And his arms just pop off. <laughs> you know what that is? That's and then storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's just the writer going, and then the arms pop off. But not... Because of anything. Mm -hmm. Some of the scenes where they're changing reminded me of society with the skin. Yeah. Moving and stuff. Like, yeah, and when he's like rubbing his face on the one dude. Yep. Mm -hmm. Her boyfriend. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we get the two-headed thing. So do you want to know what the original ending was going to be? I don't. Yeah, okay. 
So originally, when they got in the spaceship, it was going to be more than just an action set piece. We were going to find out what happened. Ooh. It was, in fact, an alien race. Uh-huh. That was not the thing. Okay. But what this alien race was doing was going from, like, planet to planet and, like, collecting specimens. Okay. And one of those specimens was the thing. Yeah. So he purposefully crashes the UFO and kills himself. And the thing tries to escape to freeze itself. So we don't get any of that because they were like, apparently it didn't test well. <laughs> and I think that would have been, I mean, it's an interesting thing to add. It, it doesn't do anything yeah. to the story, but it's but interesting to add. It's, it's basically, it sets up. Kind of like the 82 version set up the story we get in the 11 version. The 11 version was going to set up a very similar story in the in the spaceship. Another prequel? Effectively, but it's all aliens. Right. And so it's a bunch of these contained specimen <laughs> animal alien things, and one of them is the thing, and it breaks out, and the solution is we have to crash this UFO. Hmm. Hopefully kill the thing, but it doesn't. But they wrote they ended up just taking that out completely because people are like, this is w too close to the end of the movie. We're losing people. Just cut it. <laughs> and so they did. And that's why we get that computer interface block thing is because that's actually covering up the the pilot's body. Oh, was gonna be there. interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that last scene with the helicopter and Lars, it plays over with the Ennio Morricone theme. Which is the best audio sample and use of that in the movie? It's 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 really good. It's effective, and I. It, but at the end of the movie, it was just it just had me thinking how good the original is, <laughs> and what the fuck did I just watch? You just you, all you did at the end of your movie was remind me. Oh right, this would lead into the beginning of the original one. And I like that one a whole lot better. <laughs> what are we doing here? Uh, they also made a point, apparently, to make Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character not just a female MacReady. That's basically why, what she is. <laughs> that's why she's a scientist, number one. Oh, because the original movie decided to make him a helicopter pilot yes. for no fucking reason. Okay. But I don't know how true this is. This may be apocryphal, but apparently she was designed to behave more like Ellen Ripley from Alien. I'd say Ellen Ripley and... MacReady are more alike. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since she's a trucker. Yeah, She's I mean, a space trucker. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I thought Winstead did a great job. Yeah. And I thought her character was pretty badass, but she's nothing compared to Ripley. Are you kidding? Right, right. Totally. All right, Kelsey. Yes. What do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? 38. Wow. 35. Uh. It serves the bare serviceable minimum for a horror flick. But the thing is all boo scares and a slave to the far superior John Carpenter version. Yeah. It got a 49 on Metacritic and a B minus on Cinema Scores. Cinema Scores is really, really simple. They're just a service that surveys people coming out of movies, mm -hmm. what they thought just to give it a grade, and then they give you an average. 
And the average grade coming out of this movie was B minus. It's it's interesting to look at cinema scores, I think, because it just gauges how people feel without thinking too much. It's like they just came out. Did they hate it? Did they not? Were they lukewarm on it immediately after seeing it, really? So it's a completely different scoring system than you might otherwise expect. So 35% on Rotten Tomatoes, 49 on Metacritic, and a B- minus on Cinema Scores. What would you give it? Like a 45? Really? Yeah. I'd probably give it a 60. Wow. Like I said, it's not a bad movie. It's just really unnecessary, and the CGI kind of ruins it for me. Exactly. I think it's extremely unnecessary. Like, if the original didn't exist, right? Yeah. And the CGI was better, and even if it wasn't, I'd, I'd give this probably a much higher score, but it's it's just redoing things that the original did better, and not just first, better. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's kind of boring, in my opinion. Okay. And I, I like I said, I think it just it, from the get go, I was just like, you're all gonna fucking die. It's kind of it's kind of the issue that I had with Rogue One. Yeah. You're all gonna die. Like I don't get why I care about these characters, you know? And that really, really ruins your film. I mean, that's the shitty thing about Rogue One, too, is that they really didn't all have to die. Yeah, I thought Rogue One was fine, but that's not my point. But um, I'm just saying, I, ha- I had, like, zero tension. Yeah. You know? And it's kind of boring, and... The only character they successfully made me care about was Winstead. Yeah. All the other characters. I, I no, did I did torment. like Well, yeah, but that's because he's Tormund. It's not his character. No, his in the character film. was great. He's like this big, burly Norwegian dude, and and he, he gets scared a bunch. <laughs> yeah. He's got yeah. those eyes. Oh my god! There's a scene where he gets really scared. They tell him he has to go outside. And he really doesn't want to go. Okay. And he doesn't like, like wuss out or anything like that. He just very clearly, visibly (laughs) does not want to go outside, but he does it anyway. And they do make you like Edgerton's character. I didn't mention this in the very first. I I can't like Joel Edgerton on screen. He's just always creepy to me. I'm sure he's he's a really nice guy. (laughs) In the first scene that we meet him in, he has a really funny line. They're in the helicopter, because he's a helicopter pilot. Yeah. Um, and they're going out to the place in Antarctica. And he's like, I've got a question for you, for Winstead. Mm-hmm. And at first, I'm thinking, oh, God, here comes a sexual come on. Yeah. Because actually, I, we didn't say this either, but the very first conversation that we get from this film is a dude telling a dirty joke. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your first conversation is pretty important for a movie. Yeah. I don't know that I would have opened with tone. that. It does. Yeah. I I almost feel like thinking about it now, if they were going for an Ellen Ripley thing, they really should have downplayed Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character and played up Joel Edgerton's character because they we have the bonus of him being an American helicopter pilot in the Antarctic in a thing movie. You could have made it seem like he was going to be the main character just subtly, not like overtly, not like crazy, obviously, but like make it seem that way and then make Mary Elizabeth Winstead be the one to actually kill him. 
you know, like it, and make her the real star, a la Ellen Ripley and Alien. Yeah, but they would have needed to do his death earlier in the film for that to work. Probably. But anyway, she's happy. So Joel Edgerton turns to her and he's just like, let me ask you a question. And I immediately, I don't know about you, but because of that first conversation, I was like, oh, great. Here comes another sexual joke or something. But instead, he goes, how are the Cavaliers doing? (laughs) Right. And she's like, I don't follow football or I don't watch football or whatever. And he's like, the Cavaliers are basketball. (laughs) Meanwhile, the other helicopter pilot's like, why do you do it to yourself, man? Because apparently the Cavaliers are bad at basketball. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. But I thought that was really funny. In 2011? And it made you, no, in 1982. Oh, duh. Yeah, 1982, I'm sure they were. <laughs> I was hoping maybe you could help me with something. I, I can't seem to get a hold of a newspaper that's not, you know, three weeks old, and I'm a man in kind of desperate need of certain information. Uh, don't do this to yourself, man. And what information would that be? I want to know how the Cavaliers are doing. Hmm. I don't follow football. This basketball team. Barely. The Cavaliers, man. <laughs> it made you, it made you like him. And you know what is hilarious about this? You had to remind me about these characters. You had to remind me. No, I did like Tormund's character. No, I did like Edgerton's character. Yeah. So what's the biggest problem with this movie? It's forgettable. It's forgettable. It really, really is. It's very forgettable. I didn't even remember about Tormund getting scared. And when you bring it up, I'm like, oh, my God, that was a really cute scene. But I didn't remember it. Yeah. Because you know what stuck out to me the most? Or when he cha- or when the char- when the thing changes in front of everyone. Yeah. Because it's just so glaringly different from the first film. Yeah. Uh, all right, Kelsey. Well, that is 2011's The Thing. I think we can both agree, not bad, just forgettable and unnecessary. Correct. Before we leave you today, though, we are going to talk a little bit about Castle Rock. Woo! We watched the first three episodes. I think the fourth is already out by the time this episode will go live. Oh, yeah, it will be. It comes out on Wednesday. We're recording this on Monday. and But we're both going to be out of town uh, on separate trips, it's going to be really sad. <laughs> uh, and so I got to edit it now. So we won't have seen the fourth one. So we'll just be talking about the first three episodes. And spoiler warning. Yes. You should watch it before you listen to this. I mean, I don't think we're going to get in too much detail, but. Right, right, right. We're going to no, tell no. you what's happening. Yeah, no, we're not going to treat it like a movie that we watched or anything like that. We're just going to talk about our thoughts and feelings. So if you don't want to listen to that part, thank you for listening. Uh, podcemetery at gmail.com, podcemetery.com, at podcemetery on Twitter, all that jazz. If you missed out on last week's episode, we watched Christine, which we absolutely fucking love and have for a very long time. This is one of our favorite horror movies, and we got to watch it with our buddy Bob. So it's the first guest on Pod Cemetery. We had a really, really good time. If you haven't already, you should listen to that episode. The other movie we watch is Oculus, and that was really good too. Kelsey, yeah, what are we watching next week? Well, so we got some more um, recommendations. Recommendations, yeah. but we need to talk about that together. Okay. We haven't we haven't even talked about. It. I haven't even shown him that we got new recommendations. But anyway, 
What's next? I think you're going to be really excited. Uh-huh. We have another double feature next week. Okay. We're going to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes! So jazzed. Except not for the second one, but... I, you know, I think it's been long enough that I think I can objectively... We have not seen it since we saw it in theaters. Yes. I think <laughs> I think I can... Ob- I've forgotten it. I think I can objectively judge it again. <laughs> It has that dude you like. Kyle Gallner. He's a <laughs> sexy man. Stop doing that to me. <laughs> uh, but we both really, really like the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series. We've watched it through multiple times, seen tons of documentaries on it. Absolutely love Nightmare on Elm Street. So I'm really excited to do that one. Awesome. So come back next week if you don't want to listen to us talk about Castle Rock. Kelsey. Yes. What do you have to say about Castle Rock? Uh, I like it so far. Yeah. I'm curious to see where it goes. Mm -hmm. So many Easter eggs. So, so many Easter eggs. To the point where it's almost pointless. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun for me. I love looking for them. Yeah. And I I love reading online uh, people who found even more than I did. Yeah. However, there are a lot I, of like pretty, news clips and stuff like that, like newspaper clippings that you need to catch. Oh, there's a rabies dog. That's Cujo. You know, like that kind of stuff. I'm pretty proud of myself. I found most of them. Yeah. Mainly the ones that I didn't get grab were because the they were the ones I haven't read or seen. Right. Yeah. But pretty much all the ones that I have seen and read, I picked up on. Yeah. I mean, I like it. I like the show. I'm I'm really intrigued. I'm a little bit disappointed that it seems to be, especially at the end of the first three episodes, really, really narrowing in scope. At the beginning, it's big and anything can happen and we don't know what they're going to take from Stephen King's stories. And then it just like over the course of three episodes just really narrows in on this one storyline. And there's all the, these subplots like how did our main character uh, reappear and not die after 11 days out in the snow. What which, happened to his father? Which a lot of people are attributing to the Tommyknockers, which I have not read or seen. No. Yeah. And it's the idea of like aliens, basically. Yeah. And who is who is uh, uh, the Pennywise dude? What's his name? Skarsgård. Yeah. Who is he? Uh, I have. Kelsey has a theory. I, I have think a she theory. might be right. I think he is a reincarnation of a, of Randall Flagg. Randall Flagg is, is biggest. He's in a lot of things, but he is biggest in the stand as the main antagonist. Um, he's effectively a demon, mm-hmm. and he reincarnates repeatedly. So this might be a reincarnation of Randall Flagg. And he doesn't he doesn't al- he doesn't always remember who he was yeah. in the past. So this could be him. However, Randall Flagg is usually a bit more. Happy to be evil. <laughs> right. But this kid, he's been locked up, unable to interact with anybody for a very long time. I think that might be fucking with him. Right. I, I'm, I'm really enjoying it, though. I'm having a good time. It's much more of a mystery. Yeah. So far. Not a lot of supernatural things. Of course, there's some. Definitely some. There's the girl who is basically like a, like. She has the shining, essentially. Um, But it's more about feeling things that other people feel. But she can totally hear your thoughts. Um, And sometimes she basically melds with the main black character. Yes. Um, And, like, she does things for him. Yeah. Kind of. 
like things he wants to do she does yes like she has that appearance on tv it's like well now she's committed to our storyline because her life is fucked now we also know that she killed the guy's father yes but there's a lot of a lot of indication that the that the kid wanted to kill his dad and and that's why she did it like she's kind of taken over by him exactly not necessarily directly like he's controlling her right he doesn't he doesn't even know that they have that connection but she's feeling this connection so strongly that she can't control herself and for some reason, this boy hated his father. Mm-hmm. His father, who is his adopted father, who's also a priest, took him out into the middle of nowhere. Don't know why. Yeah. It kind of gives the feeling that he was kind of torturing his kid, which Maybe. is weird because the sissy spacek mother character seems to really love him. Okay, I'm coming back to sissy spacek. I just want to say real quick, though, that maybe, maybe his intention was to hurt our main character, take him out there, and an accident happen, or something like that, because he was obviously a very difficult child. And this is somebody who... The, the priest is loved by the town. The yes. town fucking loves him. So they reject the kid mm-hmm. when he comes back alive after 11 days and they think he may have killed his father. And he has zero memory of what right. happened. And, and he can't explain what happened or why he left or anything like that and where he's been and how he survived. Do you just ran away from home and your father died? So even if you didn't kill him, you're still responsible. And they fucking hate him. Mm-hmm. Even to this day. They really, really don't like him. He is the pariah of this town. So we kind of don't like the people of the town. The town is a corruptive force, obviously. It's a place where things die. It's and very your much hopes like and dreams dairy. die. Yes, it's very much like Gary it's from se- it. It's essentially dairy. Right. So the fact that they love the priest makes you question him. Yeah. There must be something really wrong with him. However, his wife, Sissy Spacek, I feel fucking loving this show she is so fantastic she is she's obviously sundowning they say it in the show uh so the visit yeah just like what happens in the visit it's like a form of alzheimer's and it tends to come at regular intervals so sometimes she's completely lucid and then other times she's off her whatever and she is really really She's very cute. She's adorable. Yeah. I I love her in this, and I hope nothing bad happens to her. And the character that she is now in a relationship with, the same guy who found the kid when he appeared. Right, who's the only one looking for him because there was going to be a big storm, and they called off the search, but he didn't stop. He went out there by himself all bundled up with hot soup or whatever, and he went looking for him, and he just found him out there. Yeah, that character apparently has been in three of King's novels. One of them is a movie that we're, we're supposed to see quite soon, which I'm excited because, you know, it's a connection. So that's exciting. Uh, do you want me to tell you? Yeah. Uh-huh. The Dark Half. Okay. And he was in two others. I think one of them is the Tommyknockers. Um, but anyway. Yeah, so this, this character is uh, Alan Pangborn. Yeah, so he's been in at least three King novels. So he's a pretty big deal in the King universe, so that's exciting. He's played by Scott Glenn, who you probably know from a lot of things, but the two biggest, most recent things are he plays the dad in The Leftovers, 
which is what we love him from. We love the leftovers. He's also stick in Daredevil. Oh, God. And the Defenders. I really like Daredevil. I don't necessarily like him as stick. Yeah. I think he does. I think he overdoes it a little bit. Yeah, maybe a little bit, yeah. But he's also been in Hunt for Red October and Training Day and all, all, a bunch of stuff. But yeah, so I'm excited to see where it goes. And like I said, tons of Easter eggs. Um, I could sit here and walk you through them, but I know that would take way too long. And I think it's kind of fun to find them for yourself. Yeah, so uh-huh. if you have read King novels, if you've seen King movies, go ahead and keep looking for them. They're there. And there's a lot that are very subtle. I was very proud of myself when we were watching uh the sheriff guy who ends up killing himself, who is aware of the town's uh, evil underlying belly. He's not the sheriff. He's the warden. Whatever. Yeah, the warden. <laughs> of Shawshank. Yeah. When he kills himself, he's got opera music playing. And I turned to Chris and I was like, I think that's the music that they play in the Shawshank movie. And Chris was like, I don't know. It is. <laughs> and and they talk about how there's still a bullet in the warden's office, there's a bullet hole, and when you look at the picture of our warden who just killed himself, just to the left is the previous warden, which is the warden from the Shawshank Redemption. So, this is very heavily focused on Shawshank. I have a prediction, though. Tell. I predict that in this season, Stephen King will show up. <laughs> He's in a lot. That's not much of a prediction, He's in Chris. a lot of his movies. <laughs> But here's here's where my prediction gets better. Okay. I think he's going to show up as Stephen King. Because he does in his own novels, in the Dark Tower series, he shows up, he writes himself into the story as Stephen King, and he is a character in the story. I had no idea. I need to read the Dark Tower series. Everyone says it's good. So I think that's my prediction. And if... If it doesn't happen, then they fucked up. I'm hundred percent. He's going to be in the show. Right. I don't know if he's going <laughs> to play himself or not, but like, we'll see. Even if it's so minor, like you see a Steve, I would, I would even qualify if there was a visibly Stephen King book in a, in a shop or something like that, that says the shining by Stephen King or something like that. So we know that Stephen King exists as a writer in this universe. That's that's my prediction. We By the end of the series, we will find that out. Okay. Any predictions for the future from you? Minor I, or storyline related? He's Randall Flagg. Oh, uh, okay. That's Good. my big prediction. Good call. Okay. Those are our predictions. Do you have any predictions for the series? How have you been liking it so far? Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or comment on the website. Uh, we'd love to hear from you because we're totally intrigued by this stuff and we are... 100% bought in. I really hope this is good. It could have been awful, and I was ready for it to be awful, and it wasn't. I'm just a little bit disappointed how narrow the scope is on this first season. Maybe it'll widen by the end of the season. Maybe they're just setting up for more stories in future seasons. I have I a know. feeling that it's going to be a little bit like American Horror Story, where you're going to get a different uh, story. From the season. town. Like, maybe we pick out one of the things they only briefly talked about or mention or hint at, and we see the whole story mm-hmm. in the next season. Yeah, that's very, very possible. All right, that is it for us. That's 1982's The Thing, 2011's The Thing, and 2018's Castle Rock. 
next week we are watching Nightmare on Elm Street and Nightmare on Elm Street. It's a double feature of a series that we fucking love. Until then, you can reach us at podcemetery.com, where you can browse all our episodes and a list of every movie we've ever had on the show. You can leave a comment there or recommend a movie or two for us to cover in a future episode. Like Kelsey said, we've got some new ones, so we'll see how we can incorporate those in the future. You can also email us at podcemetery at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at podcemetery, where we comment on a lot of things a lot of times. Kelsey just recently watched Before I Wake. Yes. Is that what it's called? I feel like just from now on, I shouldn't do Netflix original horror films because they are all so bad. Right. It, it Basically, the live tweeting devolves into, oh, my God, or what? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to encourage Kelsey to be a little bit more specific. I will with be what on she's the next one. About. I just can't help it, guys. They're <laughs> so bad. I mean, think about it. So far, guys, I have live tweeted of the Netflix originals I did Before I Wake I did The Ritual. The for and, sale one. And the, yeah, open house. Yeah. People like The Ritual. I didn't I've get to see it. I've been hearing that. Because you watched it without me. I've been hearing that. A lot of people like The Ritual. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> it starts out okay, and then it gets really bad. And I feel like, actually, you could say that about all three of them. And you know what that tells me? Netflix. They sell premises, not good movies. <laughs> yeah, Netflix, you need to be a little more hard on your writers. So what they do a lot of the times is they buy projects that either are already complete or already in the process. They're just looking for funding. Hi, Netflix, you're producers. greenlit. <laughs> yes, exactly, when you answer the phone. That's, that's really, really true because the way the structure at Netflix works, there are like VPs and stuff like that that are several rungs down the ladder who have green light authority below a certain dollar amount. Like if it's below a certain dollar amount, make it. If you want to make it go right ahead. We trust your decision-making skills. And part of it is part of it is because it's not for you. This is the thing that Netflix is really, really big on. Their whole philosophy is it's a spray and pray shotgun approach, but precision, they shoot a shotgun and they know where each one of those pellets are going. It's not always targeting you. There are people that love these type of movies. Specific movies. They can take out this genre starring this person that has a supernatural tint, but no actual ghost scene on screen or whatever. Their algorithms that they build up can pull out all this information and then they craft, they buy projects that specifically fall into these categories. And... If you don't hear about it or you don't already know about it and go searching for it, if it doesn't show up in your queue, in your list to browse through, you will never know it exists. You see an infinitesimally small amount of what's actually on Netflix at any given time. Which is hilarious because whenever I search for something, it's not there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If you're looking for something specific. Yeah, totally. Uh, But yeah, they make tons and tons and tons of content, and most of it isn't for you. But they make that okay by just never surfacing that for you, because they know the type of stuff that you're into. Anyway, that's your little primer on how Netflix works at the very tail end of the episode. Thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Kelsey... Any last thoughts? Why don't we just 
wait here for a little while. See what happens. So I'm kind of torn on how we discuss this one. Okay. As far as the plot is concerned. Okay. Because it's super complex and we're going to get into the nitty gritty of everything that's going down. Do you want to lead it? I'm fine with leading it, if that's what you want to do. Yeah, you think okay. I'll get too caught up in everything? I, I think so. Okay. Are you okay with that? I'm fine with it. But? Yeah. No, I just I just need to remember, because what happens is... I skip over things, and then And then when we go back, it's track. like, well, this seems like stupid to bring up now. So I just, I don't want you to rush through it, like, take cues, like, look at me sometimes, mm-hmm. and I might be like, can you stop for a moment? Okay. Okay. Because obviously they don't speak Norwegian. Do, do, do Norwegian people speak Norwegian? I don't know if that's a real language. I never. I was going to look I it up. You were going to look it I up. I was going to look it up while we were watching the movie, and I never did. That's a bummer. Was he in it? See the Irish cop in it from nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. No. Was he in Maniac Cop? What year was that? I don't know, 89 something? No. Was he in LA Confidential? No. Fuck! Okay. <laughs> I swear he plays an Irish cop in something. It's, it's kind of bad because his name ends in an S, so it sounds possessive. He burns Benning's thing. Anyway. God, he is in so much shit. <laughs> Like, oh my god. Holy shit. He was the voice of Apollo, the sun god. He's Goliath from Gargoyles. The main character? Yes. Fucking love that show when I was a kid. He does a I lot loved of eating the spaghettios that were <laughs> looked like them, and I watched the show while I ate them. And spaghettios sound amazing right now. <laughs> oh my god. Spaghettios are garbage. Kelly gave me so much shit when we were in high school when she found out that I still ate them. I still eat them, Kelly. Uh-huh. If you're listening. He has 292 acting credits on IMDb. That's just shy of 300 things he's been in. He's got friends on the other side. (laughs) But it's also something that a child's thing would say. Damn it. Damn it. Can't say child's thing. (laughs) If anybody remembers that weird giant hat that, uh... Ooh. 